Well, good morning. My name is Matt. I'm uh, part of the, the leadership here at Grace City Church, help lead a life group and do a few things like that. And uh, we have been in this series, uh, I think it's about the start of September, that we, we've called Fear Not. And this morning is, as Rich said, the, the very last sermon in the series. And over the last few weeks, we, we've really looked in detail at a number of very specific fears we, we've looked at the fear of the past, of shame and guilt. We've looked at the, the, the fear of the, the present storm, the present difficulty. We've looked at the fear of the future and what might happen, the fear of failure. We've looked at fear of money and not having it, the, the, the fear of being alone and, and singleness. Uh, we've, we've looked at the fear of commitment. And all of these, by the way, they're all available online on Grace City. .ca. If you want to go and listen, a couple of people earlier this week was like, oh, I've, mi- I've missed one or I've missed two. And no, they're, they're, you can go and listen to them. They're all online. You can catch up if, you, if you'd like. So the question is, how are we going to finish the series? How are we going to round it out? What is, what is the fear that we are going to look at um, to, to finish our discussion of this topic? Well, the fear we're, we're looking at this morning is the fear... And I'm just going to say this right at the beginning, right at the start of our time of teaching this morning, that this is the fear that does not fit with any of the other fears that we've looked at. This is the fear that stands in contrast to, even stands against all of these other anxieties. This morning, we are going to talk about the fear of God. And there's this phrase isn't there that you may hear people use, um, God-fearing. I don't know if you've heard someone say that kind of word to describe another person. It was interesting to me last week as, as Rich was preaching on uh, the, the fear of commitment. We, you know, Will Roper hopped up just to share his story about how, how he over the years has, has come to really value the church and really love the, the church. And he was talking about just his own experience of his parents and how, uh, how much of an influence as two people, his mom and his dad, who, who just loved the the church, the influence that they had had on him. And it was interesting, he, he picked one word to describe them, and Will said that they were God-fearing. God-fearing is, is a term we, we often use when, when talking about other people. Even if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. Maybe this is the first time in, in church. You, you don't maybe do religion. You may, you may have used that word yourself. Oh, so-and-so, oh, he's, he's really God-fearing. Or her, she just really serious. She, she fears God. But if we were to think a little bit about that phrase, God-fearing, we may end up a bit confused by what it means. You know, the, maybe the, the more we think about it, as I, I'm kind of forcing you all to, to do it right, right now, there may even be things that you start to be aware you're a bit uncomfortable about that term. But before we talk about the fear of God. Let's just double check, right? But let's just see. Do, do the scriptures actually tell us to fear God? Because if they don't, we can just forget it, right? We, we can just go, okay, well, it's, it's, not, it's not in here. We don't need to think about it. We can just wrap the service up there. The, the long coffee queue can go back up and, and get that coffee that they were really wanting. And let's ask that question. Do, do, do the scriptures talk about fearing God? Well, it, the, the answer is, overwhelmingly, yes, they do lots and lots of times. So I've just, I've just picked a few. Essentially, I've picked these 
at random, if you like. I could have picked any, just I went, I went for these two. So this is uh, Deuteronomy chapter 10. It says this, Moses says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? So that's Moses and Deuteronomy. What about the writer of uh, Ecclesiastes? This is right at the very end of the book of Ecclesiastes where he is summing up. The writer, he's been writing all about what life is, what life is all about, and how it ought to be lived. And this is um, what, what uh, the writer of Ecclesiastes says right at the end. The final two verses says this. The end of the matter. All has been heard. I'm finishing writing this book. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. The writer of Ecclesiastes sums it all up. You don't need to read Ecclesiastes now, right? That's what, it's not true. But that's what, essentially what he says, right? The whole duty of man is to fear God. And I could be here for another 20 minutes just going through and reading out this bit or that bit. You know, if you just have a phone and you type in fear of God or fear of the Lord, or you just, you'll just see them all. And again, all this talk of fear... And, and fearing God and us even being commanded to do this, this might be making a number of us just feel quite uncomfortable. This is the awkward question that we have. What does it mean for our relationship with God if fear is in the mix somehow? You know, a relationship with fear in it sounds awful. It sounds horrid. We might think of earthly relationships that have fear or in them, and we might start to think of abusive, violent husbands, or we might start to think of angry, scary father figures. That's why we might we just might go, I've heard it said and I've seen it in the Bible, but I'm not sure I know what to do with this. And so we might start to look for various solutions to this problem, if you like. And, and here's, here's one solution that we could have, and I've heard this one a bunch since moving to Canada. It, it's, we could say, in, in, a, in a quite dismissive fashion, well, Matt, I've noticed that you, that was, that was Old Testament that you were writing there, uh, you were reading there. You know, the Old Testament, Moses, he was... He, he was right about some things, but he wasn't right about everything. And, you know, he was on a trajectory. You know, he was headed in a good direction. He started in a good place. But we are further along that trajectory now. And we know that we're, fear of God is not meant to be part of our relationship to, to God. You know, we, we, get, we get to Jesus and we don't see Jesus say anything about fear in God. Which sounds good. But... What it does reveal is that we haven't really read the words of Jesus, or at least we haven't really read them very carefully. And actually, so if you were to ask me, Matt, where would you go to, to see the most glorious, the most out, scandalous, outstanding uh, things in the, in the Bible, talking about God's grace and his love and his unconditional acceptance and his care for, for widows and sinners who do not deserve it? You know what? Some of those places are just in the Old Testament. And some of the hardest words about judgment 
and the punishment of sin and God's impossibly high standards, I see come from the lips of Jesus. Some of the words we're going to read this morning are going to be those words. We're going to read the words of Jesus, and some of these words are initially going to trouble us. I'm just going to put that out there. But I think as we start to read them, as we start to think about them and and let them speak to us, I think they're going to instruct us, and they're going to lead us, and they're going to teach us into having a a right, healthy, and, and hear me on this one, a freeing and liberating view of God and the fear of God. So we're going to read Matthew 20, uh, sorry, Matthew chapter 10, and let's read from, from verse 28 together. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore you are of more value than many sparrows. See, in this series, we've been talking about this fear and that fear. We've been determined to to address them and talk about them and cast them out, if you like. And right here at the end of our series, we actually, we see Jesus address another kind of fear. We haven't talked about this fear yet. Who wants a bonus fear to talk? That's a weird question. Who, oh, I would like bonus, Matt, talk to me about a bonus fear, an extra fear that you're going to walk, uh, just uh, slot in right at the end. Well, he, what, does he, what does Jesus say? He says, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. He, he, Jesus is talking about people. Jesus is putting his finger on the fact that our hearts can be so riddled with fear about other people. What does this person think of me? When I was in that conversation and I said that, did that please the people who were around me or, or, or did, did it not? Is, is so-and-so going to look down on me because of what I said or what I did? Jesus knows that our motivations can be primarily driven by worrying about those around us. And he calls it fear. Jesus, in, in fact, he, he jumps to asking, just asking the question, listen, what is the worst thing that someone can do to you? It's, it's to kill you, isn't it? That's the most ultimate thing. There's nothing kind of which, which has more consequences to you than killing you. And he still says, in this case, Jesus is saying, don't, don't fear men. The worst they can do is kill you. Jesus is just saying, that's, you know what, that is as bad as it gets. And that's not the worst thing that can happen. Because then Jesus says this, he says, rather, right, instead of fear in men, the thing that replaces that fear, he says, rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And he's talking about God. See, Jesus, we might not like this, but Jesus believes in hell. He believes in final judgment. He speaks about it 
openly many times. He wants his listeners to take it seriously. He cares about his listeners enough to bring this to them again and again. And we can't get away from that if we read the Gospels. Jesus says that on that that coming day, that judgment day, is a day where God will be shown to be just and righteous. And that is a scary thought. Now, I don't have time this this morning to get into all the questions that I'm sure are in this room right now about hell. Uh, Last year, when we were preaching through the book of Mark, we we spent a whole sermon speaking, uh, talking about it. And you can go on gracecity.ca, you can click through to the Mark series. Um, There's a preach there called Raising Hell. And that's when we, we really talked through this topic in depth. And this is a good thing for us as a church. We've got to the we've got to the place where of teaching through the Bible, we can point back and we can go, go and listen to this and we can build on that build on teaching that we've done previously. But the but the short of it is this fear of God is a natural response to who God really is is that he is perfect and he is holy and because we sinners are not and we are deserving of judgment. There isn't a single man or woman in this room or in this city or in this fallen, broken world which is full of pain who is good enough, who is holy enough. We're all imperfect and we all deserve death and hell. And that is what Jesus is reminding us of here. And every Christian, every true Christian, if you are a true believer in Jesus, part of that is that you have recognized this about yourself. That on your very best day, that on my very best day, when I'm just, I'm, I'm doing the, the, the best, I'm being the most holy and, and most pious that I can possibly be, Those best efforts, as Isaiah says, are filthy, disgusting rags. That sin is too big for us to overcome ourselves. This is the bad news. Right, And I'm so grateful it doesn't stop there. I'm so glad that Jesus doesn't stop at verse 28. Don't fear man, fear the one who can throw both body and soul into hell. And that will happen. If he stops there, this is just doom and gloom for absolutely everyone. But that is not the end of what Jesus wants to say. That is not the end of what Jesus wants his disciples to know. It's a bit strange if we ask the question, what then does Jesus say next? Because Jesus goes from talking about hell to talking about birds. That's what Jesus does. He's talking from hell to talking about birds. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. You see, what I find so absolutely fascinating about what we've read this morning is that Jesus gives us two commandments, and at first glance, they seem utterly contradictory. In verse 28, Jesus says, fear, because God is a God of judgment. And then in verse 31, Jesus says, gloriously, fear not, for God the Father cares about you. 
God the Father cares for you. If, if you're a Christian, if you are a believer in Jesus and therefore a member of God's family, that is how it is. I, I love the way God's care is articulated here. Right? God, God's, God's care is not a distant sort of care, this kind of indiscriminate low-level kind of background noise caringness that he has to you, like, I, I, like health insurance, right? I, I've, made, I've made use of health insurance in the past few weeks, and, uh, you know, you might ask the question, does, does health insurance care for me? And you might say, well, yeah, it does, but only in a very distant sort of blanket, indiscriminate way that it cares for the other million other people in this database on some cloud, on some computer somewhere. Does, does health insurance care for me? Yeah, it does. But God's care is not like that at all. Jesus talks about the Father knowing the number of hairs on your head. Right? If you were to know that the number of hairs on the head of the person sat directly to your left or right, what, what are you going to have to do? You're going to have to get real close you're going to have to really get up and, and look. And if you wanted to, to keep an accurate count, you're going to have to follow them around and be staring at them. You know, oh, they scratched their head. I'm just going to mark one down there on one, one hair. This is the kind of care. There's a closeness, right, to, to God's care for his people. There's an over-the-top interest, personal, intimate. This is a capital C kind of care that God the Father has for those who are in his family. It's a matter of priorities as well. Because there is this sense that, that, yeah, God is the maker and the creator of all things, all galaxies, all creatures, all animals. Scriptures, the scripture says that, that God sustains all things by the power of his word. So there's a sparrow somewhere on this planet who is... Who ha- whose little bird heart is beating and whose little bird brain full of little bird neurons is firing. This is my impression of a sparrow. Welcome. Uh, that, and, and the bird brain is, is firing and it's flying around and it's living. Why? Because God is sustaining the whole universe. That Jesus says, and he says this to his followers, you know what? God ranks you of far, far, far more importance than a sparrow. There's a a reason God is talking about the Father here. As believers, this this is how we relate to God. This is the primary way we relate to God, as our perfect Father. And that is hard for some of us. If we we have had, you know, I mentioned it earlier, if if our experience of earthly fathers is, is one of absent fathers or angry fathers or abusive fathers... And, and you know what? There isn't a father in this room. You, the, the, the best father that you could, that there is in all the families in front of me now, that is just a mere shadow. The very best father is just a mere shadow of the perfection of the perfect father. If you're here this morning and, and you are, you are somewhere, someone you, you have not yet surrendered your life to Jesus, you haven't asked him for the, the forgiveness of sins. None, none of what I have just been saying applies to you yet. It can do. 
You know, occasionally I, I hear someone um, say something like, oh, we're all God's children, aren't we? And, and that sounds good. There's, there's, a nice, there's a nice ring to it, but it, it sadly is, is not true. And this is why. This is what John chapter 1 says. Talking about God in Jesus says this, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. So God comes to earth in the, in the man Jesus Christ and his people, the God's chosen people, the Israelites, rejected him largely on the whole. His own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him. So there were some who did receive him, some Jews and some non-Jews, Gentiles as well. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. He gave the right to become, to to start being, to enter, to become adopted into the family and become children of God. If you receive Jesus, if you believe in his name, if if you get all your hopes together and you just hang them all on Jesus and just say, okay, Jesus, all of my... Sin, all of my worthlessness, all of my the, the ways I have screwed up, I'm just I'm hanging them all on you, Jesus. Then what happens? You become born of God. Not of man, not of the flesh, not of your own blood and sweat and effort. It's not about what you have done. It's about you become born of God. You become his child. A miracle happens within and God becomes your father and a good father, and the only perfect father who cares for his children like we have just seen he cares for his children. So instead of being punished for your sin, of being thrown into hell, it is a punishment that falls on Jesus, the Son of God who goes in your place. That, if you want to know how much does God care for me, how much does God love me, that is how much God cares for you specifically. And so we find that the primary reason that Jesus says to fear the one who can throw both body and soul into hell is taken away. Because we are, we are assured that that possibility will never occur, never occur to those who are within God's family. All the judgment Not 90% of the judgment, not 99.9% of the judgment, it it falls on Jesus, but all of it falls on Jesus. And that when Jesus says it is finished, that is that. That is the care that the Father has for us. This This is what Rich was talking about last week, that God creates a covenant establishes this promise, this formal promise, an eternal promise that you are in his family now. Unlike us, unlike me, God keeps his promises. God keeps his word. This is, this is something of what John Newton, who, who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, was getting at when he writes, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. 
See, the, the kindness of God, his grace, opens our eyes to our own sin, to the ways that we have fallen, to, to our own wretchedness, how deserving of judgment and how we are. Listen, if you have any sense of that this morning, if you have even a, a glimpse of that this morning, that is the kindness of God that you can see that. And that same grace displayed in Jesus, taking our sin upon himself on the cross, that is the, the, the grace that releases you from that fear. That is the perfect love that casts out all fear. And so if you are not a believer in Jesus, you, you cannot say right now, this moment in time, if I were to go to you, find you and ask you, are you in God's family? You'd, and you would have to say, no, if you were to call upon the name of Jesus this morning, you would be saved. And if, if that's you, I want that for you. We want that for you. The Christians in the room want you to know that is something worth tasting and knowing. And I want to pray for you if that is you at the end of the service, you know, when everyone's going and grabbing a coffee and no one's paying attention, you might just, just come and tap me on the shoulder. And say, I'd love to talk to you because I'd love to talk with you. I'd love to pray with you this morning if that is something that you want. So what now then, right? For, for those of us who are Christians, we're, we're now in God's family. Do we not fear God anymore? Is that what happens? Well, this is important because... Yes, we must. You know, Jesus is, is, is talking to his disciples in the passage we've read where, where Jesus says not to fear man but to fear God. And we as his followers also are to hold these two commandments, fear and fear not, together. We've got to do it. And the, and the reason is because the, as the, the Christian God, once we become Christians, he, he does not change. He, he makes us new. He takes away our sin. He welcomes us in and he, he calls us close and cares for us. But God is still the judge of the whole world. He is still unimaginably powerful. He is still completely holy. That hasn't changed. He's still fundamentally just who he is, scarily awe-inspiring. So how on earth do we balance that then? Like how, how are we meant to hold both fear and fear not? How do we put them together? Here's something that may, that may help as we, as we think through this. So when my, when my dad was uh, 17, right, before he went to university, he went and worked for the, the Ministry of Defense in Scotland. And, and part of his job was to be uh, aboard a Royal Navy minesweeper uh, ship and, and head towards Norway every now and then and, and help perform some, some trials there. And you got a, a picture of the, the, the ship, right? This is, this is the ship. This is, this, is, this is the thing that surprised me, right? This, was a, this is a wooden ship. And I was like, oh, it was a wooden ship. My dad was like, no, if, if, if you make a ship out of metal, that's how the magnetic, it has to be a not magnetic ship. Otherwise, the mines will. Get you, I, I don't know enough. My life does not feature exploding ocean-based mines enough to know. I just don't know anything about mines, nor the sweeping of them. But this is the boat, and it's a small boat, and because it's wooden, it gets flung around in storms. And you know what? A massive storm is exactly one day what whipped up 
such that these trials that the Royal Navy, Navy was, was doing were all cancelled, and the mission became not, let's go and do these trials, but rather, let's get back to shore in one piece. And my, my dad is up on deck during this storm, and, and this is the bit I can't imagine, because I've never been in this situation myself, um, but just to, to be on deck and to not have a fixed point on any horizon, not being able to look around and just, just seeing waves heaving higher than the boat in every direction. You know, one moment, you're, you're kind of the, the boat is tipped up here and all you see is, is the sky. And then the mo- next moment, the, the, the water falls out from beneath and then you're, just, you're just staring at the sea below. I, I don't know what that's like. In fact, the, the storm gets so bad that everyone has to get just Get below the deck. Was my dad fearful of the storm and the ocean? Well, yes, absolutely. He, he, he takes the situation very seriously indeed. There is actual, obvious danger here, and flippancy could lead to some serious danger of drowning. And yet, at the very same time, my dad says he was not fearful of the ocean and the storm. Why? Because on board was this crew of hardened Royal Navy old-timers who had been in much worse situations countless times before, and none of them seemed the least bit bothered. And all of them knew exactly what to do to stay safe. So at the very same time, there's this healthy fear, there's this reverence, there's this awe, there's this wonder. You know what, there's, there's going even further, there's even this excitement. There's an exhilaration of seeing the raw power of the ocean in ways that most people don't. And also at the very same time, coexisting with that, there is a complete lack of fear but and a safety and a feeling of security that my dad was in the one place where the, the storm could not touch him. See, that, the, the, the recognition of the, the awe of, the taken seriously of, the, the excitement, the exhilaration even of the power and the might and the, if you like, the danger of who God is ought to be present in the life of the Christian. I'll give, I'll give you just another picture of this approach. It's, it's one that C.S. Lewis, he articulates it really well. Um, in the Chronicles of Narnia, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where the children, right, they, they find themselves in this magical land of Narnia. They first hear about the king, about Aslan, for, who in the story represents Jesus for the very first time. Mr. Beaver says this, Aslan is a lion. The lion, the, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. God is not tame, but he's good. If we don't have this this healthy reverence, this awe of who God is, you know what? There are so many dangers that come when that is missing. If, if we don't, as Jesus tells us to, fear God, what happens is that we can end up being flippant towards God. We can end up not taking him very seriously. You know, I, I, might, I might call this the Jesus is my homeboy approach to God. 
You've seen those T-shirts, right? I'm really sorry if you have one or you're wearing one right now. Just someone in the back is <laughs> zipping up. I'm, I'm sorry, but you've seen the, you know, it, it says, Jesus is my homeboy. And then there's this picture of this kind of American action figure like Jesus kind of giving you the finger guns. As if, hey, Jesus is your pal. Jesus is your pal from college. Rather than the king. Now listen, if you, if you treat Jesus, I'm going to an extreme here, but if you do treat Jesus like he's your college roommate rather than the judge of the whole world, then you're probably not going to take what Jesus says very seriously at all or obey what he says. We will we'll end up with a very low view of this book if we read it at all. I'm not saying that we don't read it and we don't have questions and we don't think we're... No, that, that's, that's taking this book seriously. But there are many warnings in Scripture about that kind of flippancy. And it's not a warning that, oh, you might be kicked out of God's family. No, we've already said that God keeps his promises. Instead, these, these warnings throughout Scripture are the warnings that you may end up discovering that all along you thought you knew Jesus and then finding out on that day, on the worst day, that you never knew him. That's a scary thought. And so what we do is we hold these two commandments, fear and fear not, together. Fear because God is the one who can throw both body and soul into hell. Fear not because God the Father cares for you. I said right at the beginning that the the fear of God stands distinct. It stands uniquely apart from all those other fears that we've been talking about over the weeks. And here's the biggest difference. The fear of God directs us to him, not away from him. Right? So if a, if a, a Canadian bear were to burst through this wall and just go, ah, oh, I'm a bear, I'm a, a Canadian bear. That's what they do. Shall I have seen them? I don't know why there's an animal. In, anyway, so a bear, a Canadian bear crashes through this wall. I can tell you exactly where all of you are going to go. You're going to go that way. You're going to be running out of that door because you want to get away from the source of the fear. Likewise, if you are scared of commitment, you're going to avoid marriage. You're going to avoid church or life group. If you're scared of um, not having enough money, you're not going to be generous. You're going to just keep it, even if it's, under, if it's just in your heart. I'm going to keep it all to myself. What about the fear of God? Well, the fear of God doesn't make us run from him. The right fear of God directs us to him. We, we run to God because we know it's only in his presence that we are safe and that we are welcomed. You know, perhaps that is you this morning. You, you feel the weight of your sin. But peculiarly, instead of trying to run further away from Jesus to, to avoid coming to church to the holy time, you have found, you have come here this, this morning. You, you want to come to him. You want to receive from him the forgiveness of sin. Have that fear dealt with, whether or not you have been a Christian for many years or whether you've never received this forgiveness of sin. The fear of God is the only fear that causes us to run to the source of our fear. 
You can do that this morning. You can come to Jesus. You can receive the love of the Father. You can taste of the, just the care that God the Father has for you. And if you've never done it before, you can become a follower of Jesus this morning. If that's you, again, I would love to speak to you after this service is done. Fear of God means we get to stand and sing in worship, as we're just going to do in a moment. And we are free to worship with a sense of liberation this morning. As his family, we are able to lift, as the scriptures say, holy hands in prayer with the full assurance that God himself has made our hands clean and made them holy. Now, yes, he is awesome in might and power and he hates sin, but because of Jesus, God is our good father and we are free to approach him, not with trembling, not timidly, but instead boldly. What an amazing thing Jesus has made us able to do.